You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Friday, December 7th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health hosted a discussion with Catherine Perrar, former Ash Center Democracy Fellow, Deputy Director in the English National Health Service, and a current fellow of practice in the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Psychology of Change program. Catherine was joined in conversation by Donald Berwick, MD, MPP, Institute for Healthcare Improvement President Emeritus and Senior Fellow. The talk was titled Leadership, Organizing, and Innovation Making Healthcare Work. Marshall Gans, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. Good afternoon. It's 10 minutes after 12. It's afternoon. Let me try again. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Thank you. Just want to make sure everybody's present and engaged. Uh, my name is Marshall Gans, and I want to welcome you to this conversation about, about health care, uh, organizing innovation and change uh, with our two guests, uh, Catherine Pereira and Don Burwick. Um, this, uh, now, this is what I'm supposed to say here. This is the final session of the Ash Community Speaker Series for the fall semester, uh, and we're very pleased that this event is co-sponsored by the T.H. Um, uh, Chan uh, School of Public Health as well. Uh, this series takes place uh, on Fridays throughout the ac academic year over lunch. It's intended to highlight salient research, teaching, and practice. Uh, and today, in addition to an audio recording, uh, we're going to be live streaming uh, this session on Facebook. Uh, and a photographer is going to be capturing uh, the event as well. Uh, although few would disagree with the statement that everyone should have access to affordable, quality, and sustainable health care, actually making that happen turns out to be a major challenge in most parts of the world. Uh, today's guests are committed to figuring this out and making it happen in the U.S., in the U.K., and elsewhere. So I want to introduce our, our two uh, conversants. Uh, and then we'll hear from each of them, and then we'll open up to discussion. First, Catherine. Uh, Catherine Pereira grew up in the small market town of, how do you say this, Aylesbury? Aylesbury. <laughs> Aylesbury. You want to say Buckinghamshire? That's it, Buckinghamshire. So right. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just outside London. Uh, born to Irish parents. Her father was a history teacher. Uh, her mother was a youth worker. Uh, she was educated at uh, Balliol College at Oxford with a history MA and began her career as a barrister at 11 KBW Chambers uh, in the Temple, London. Now, this is all sort of code language. <laughs> <laughs> she specialized in employment and education law. Uh, in uh, 2010, after standing as a parliamentary candidate for the Labor Party in her hometown, she left her legal practice and established a community organizing hub called the Movement for Change, alongside uh, parliamentarians such as uh, David uh, Miliband, uh, Miliband, which she ran for four years. Uh, alongside this, in 2011, she was elected to the National Committee of the Labor, uh, Labor Women's Network, and in 2016, joined us here uh, at the Ash Center as a U.S.-U.K. Fulbright Commission Scholar. Uh, in 2017, uh, as a fellow, uh, she she continued as a fellow of practice at the how do you say it Blavatnik yes, School yeah. of Government at Oxford, and currently is a fellow of practice at the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. Uh, in 2016, she became deputy director of the National Health Service (NHS) Horizons, uh, the entity focused on innovation, adaptation, and change within the NHS. Uh, Catherine was also a friend and collaborator of Joe Cox the MP who was tragically assassinated in 2016. As a result of the efforts of Catherine and many others to continue her work with the Loneliness Commission, last year the UK named the first Minister for Loneliness, so far as we know, in the world. Uh, most recently, she contributed chapters to Honorable Ladies, a collection of essays to mark the centenary of, William suffrage, uh, of women's suffrage in the UK. She lives in London. Let's welcome Catherine. Thank you. So those introductions uh, get longer. Go on. Yeah. I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay. Right, go on. Do, 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 do. Okay. Right. <laughs> longer and longer. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, Don Berwick uh, is President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where Catherine is now a fellow, uh, an organization that he co-founded and led as President and CEO for 18 years. He grew up in Modus, Connecticut, the eldest of three brothers, where his father served as the town's family doctor and his mother as primary caregiver. Called to service by the ethical foundations of his Jewish tradition, he graduated from Harvard College, Harvard Medical School, uh, earned an MPP here at the Kennedy School, uh, and began his career as a pediatrician, but soon focused on how to scaffold medical practice with systems that could assure quality, sustained, and adaptive health care. Uh, in 1989, uh, he co-founded the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and has been in the forefront of a movement, and it is a real movement. Uh, I can testify to that because uh, it was 2010, I think. Uh, he, has, he hosts, uh, the movement hosts an annual gathering in Florida, in Orlando, of some uh, a modest group of some five or 6,000. Uh, is that the numbers, right? 6,000. 6,000. Uh, combination of providers, practitioners, medical students from throughout the world. Uh, I think of it more as kind of a revival meeting uh, that sustains the movement from year to year. It's really an extraordinary uh, occurrence that I had the privilege to, uh, to participate in uh, uh, at, uh, earlier. Um, so he's been in the forefront of this movement committed to these goals in the U.S., the U.K., and around the world. Uh, in two, and I have to say this, for this is, impresses Americans. In 2005, he was appointed Honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II, the highest honor awarded in the UK to non-British subjects uh, in recognition of his work with the British National Health Service. Um, well, there's another little story there. But in 2010, President Obama named him administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a post he held until 2011. He served on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, School of Public Health, on the staff of Boston Children's Hospital, Medical Center, Mass General, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He also served in leadership roles with the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, American Hospital Association, National Advisory Council of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and National Academy of Medicine. And along the way with all this, has found time to author or co-author over 160 scientific articles and six books. Uh, let's welcome Doc Burwick. So, Catherine, get us started. Okay. I was going to say, you, uh, you know you're getting old when the introductions get longer and longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a pleasure to be here. Um, so there's a joke in the uh, unit that I'm part of, NHS Horizons, and it was first told to me by a woman called Dr. Helen Bevan, who leads our unit. Um, and it goes like this. Uh, a woman who's involved in healthcare and sees herself as being a bit different in the world, is asked to describe herself in three words. And she says, I am a rebel. I quite like it. Um, so I'm going to start off in that same spirit and rebel slightly against the brief of sort of keeping this narrowly in healthcare. Because what I want to do is to talk about some themes and really just throw some questions out to get the discussion going on uh, where we're going more widely. So what I say is linked to healthcare, but I think it applies much, much more broadly um, in terms of questions about public service, leadership, and, and organizing and change. In 1948, the National Health Service was founded in the UK on a burning platform. The service represented something much more than a kind of narrow, medicalized model of care. Its inception spoke to who we were as a country and what we thought was important as we came out of two brutal global wars. And it also spoke to the great evils, social evils, that we thought then were intolerable. So William Beveridge, the great liberal economist, set out these five evils that the welfare state would be designed to vanquish. And one of those was disease. And I think there was an understanding at that time that disease and the other five were complicated problems. There was a determined desire to solve those problems. 
And that desire was born out of a belief that if we have defined processes, we have sufficient resources, and we have political will, we can overcome those challenges. Many of the challenges that we faced at that time were complicated. Building hospitals, sorting out contracts for clinicians, standardizing models of care that we knew, if we applied universally, would achieve a discernible improvement in the overall health. So these problems were amenable to an approach that was based on having a single system where we could make sustained progress and we could monitor and measure that progress over time. I rehearse that history simply because I want to draw a distinction between the complicated problems that captured the imagination of those generations and where we find ourselves now. On the cusp of 2019, I think what we face looks substantively different. I would venture that there are very few problems in healthcare, in developed economies anyway, which sit within the realm of the complicated. And what I want to suggest is that there's something that sits across any of the particulars that we might choose to discuss today, whether it's equity or long-term health conditions or fiscal constraints. And it's not just about a shift from complicated problems to complex challenges, per se. Rather, it's also about how we as individuals and collectively have the ability and the will to meet with the way that we think the complexity of the challenge that we now face. So I want to talk briefly about complexity in two ways. First, I'm going to talk about environmental factors. And these are widely recognized, that the space has become more complex. The interaction between systems, the way that we need to adapt our processes, that is recognized as an environmental factor. So I'm going to kind of dance very lightly over some of the topics that we might want to cover. Topics such as this. How do we optimize the quality of life now that we have so much longevity? That balance between quality and quantity. The recognition that our biggest potential gains now are not in cure, they're in prevention. The drive towards increasingly bespoke services. So in the NHS, we talk about this as personalized care. Um, and that basically is the difference between caring for people like you and caring for you. There's the role of integration. So bringing disparate public services together so that they work more closely. The negotiation that's already well underway about the relationship between human intelligence and artificial intelligence and how we meet that. Climate breakdown. I no longer call it climate change. Let me give you one example. How should a healthcare system adapt when the data suggests that health accounts for about 5% of the country's road traffic and air pollution is so clearly linked to poor health? That is now the case in the UK. And it's a startling fact that surely transgresses healthcare's most basic aim to do no harm. So all of these environmental challenges require us to move beyond solutions in healthcare which are narrowly construed and linear. That mental model that we had no longer survives contact with reality. And we might, in the discussion we're going to have, dive into any of those topics, and I would welcome that. But before we do that, I want to suggest one other form of complexity for us to think about. It's distinct from the environmental factors, although our ability to address them is dependent on it. And this is what I'm going to call inner complexity. The ways in which we think as leaders, as people, as citizens, more than that, the way in which we make sense of the world and know the world 
And the two questions that I'm going to ask you to hold for a couple of minutes are these. Do we have sufficient capacity of thought to gain insight into the complexity of challenges that we now face in order to act effectively? And if we don't, how are we going to develop that capacity in ourselves and in others? So just to emphasize here, I am not talking about what we know. I'm talking about our ways of knowing, of making sense of the world and then intervening accordingly. And in doing so, I'm drawing a distinction between what most healthcare systems understand as learning, which is the, the acquisition of technical skills and competencies, and the shift that we need towards a much more interdependent, subtle, complex form of making sense of what's happening around us. What adult developmental psychologists like Professor Bob Keegan would call growing rather than learning. The increased capacity to make sense and therefore act. The ability to hold contradictions, to see patterns, to look at systems within systems and make sense of how we intervene effectively. I'm talking about nothing less than a shift in what we mean by education. A radical shift as to where we place our energies in healthcare, in other sectors, as a people. Away from the dominant focus on information towards enhancing our capacity around the effectiveness of human judgment. And as I say this, I recognize that it represents a direct challenge to our received understandings of what education means for clinicians, for senior managers, for other people in healthcare. Where for so long, as in my life in law and my life in academia, individual technical proficiency has been the coin of the realm. I'm suggesting that the acquisition of technical competency, while vital, is no longer enough, not nearly enough, for the challenges that we face. And that if we really want healthcare to move forward, we need to recognize the scale of the psychological challenge of what we're asking of our people as we reconfigure our healthcare systems at increasing scale and speed. And inherent in that process is loss. So I'll just finish with a few, few thoughts on that. Inherent in that process is letting go of one way of being and acquiring a new and perhaps unwelcome identity. And incidentally, this is one of the reasons why the much discussed integration that we need, so integration being the uh, bringing together of disparate public services, has been so sporadic, both in the UK and also in the United States. Because while integration must surely be the direction of travel, it also involves loss. Loss of professional distinctiveness for those whose understanding of a discrete professional identity was formed in their earlier time and, and was formative to who they think they are in the world. And it is this psychological element of change that I believe is so poorly accounted for in our current stories of how we make healthcare work moving forward. So I'm just going to end by posing a, a thought that bridges between Marshall and Don's worlds. In both those worlds, so the world of healthcare improvement and the world of organizing for change, the community organizers start in question, who are my people? That question has never been more urgent. Alexis de Tocqueville, who was the great 18th century philosopher, came from France to the United States and stared in wonder at the institutions that were being created. And he said, knowledge of how to combine is the mother of all other knowledge. And on its progress depends that 
of everything else. I believe that progress in healthcare today depends on rediscovering and then reimagining that knowledge of how we combine, how we grow and adapt collective responses which are not simply programmatic, but which unleash our collective energy. It's the difference between change because we have to and change because we want to. And it's all the difference in the world. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. Well, <laughs> the smartest thing to do now is to, for me to just shut up and talk about <laughs> Catherine. That was amazing, Catherine. Uh, so it's going to take a little bit of work to build a bridge between the stuff I wanted to talk about in response to Marshall's kind invitation and what Catherine laid out now, which is uh, stupendous. It really is. Really uh, towering. Uh, let me just say how happy I am to be on the same platform with uh, Catherine and with, with Marshall. It's going uh, on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of, I, I, I don't think there's a person I've learned more from than Marshall in the past uh, certainly 10 or 15 years of my life. He's been a tremendous mentor. Um, so I'm going to go back to healthcare specifics a bit, and then let's build a bridge to what Catherine said. Um, I, I should warn you, I'm very much, uh, the national forum that, that Marshall referred to this very large meeting, I'm leaving here to get on an airplane to go down there, as is Catherine, uh, for five days with these thousands of people, and, it's, uh, and I, I give a keynote speech, so I've been thinking a lot about that. So narcissistically, a, a lot of it is referring to what's on my brain right now. Um, let me tell you a couple things that I'm going to be talking about, all of which resonate with, what, with, the, with the framework Catherine just talked, especially that amazing um, idea of internal, uh, internal change. That's very important. Uh, I'll start with two, two things. Uh, yesterday, I was given a gift. I was at the, the meeting of uh, Neighbor to Neighbor, which is a, it's a wonderful grassroots organization. And the, Head of it, uh, Lena Latona, uh, began her remarks by uh, reminding me, because I'd heard this before of something, uh, you need to know my son-in-law uh, was uh, bred in, in, um, in, in Zimbabwe, so it was very connected to some of the African cultures on there. And, and Elena pointed out that in the Shana culture, which is one of the big ethnic groups in southern Africa, uh, when, you, when you greet someone, one of the uh, traditional forms of greeting is this. You say to the person, um, do you sleep well? And the traditional response is, I sleep well if you sleep well. Um, and I'm going to come back to that, because that's a really important theme. And it's very connected to the connectedness that Catherine was talking about. Let me give you another fact, because this is the focus of my, my speech. Um, if you get on the D train in New York City at Midtown Manhattan, uh, the average lifespan of the people walking above you is 85 years. Average income is about $200,000. It's a very well-off uh, upper middle class or upper class environment. Uh, if you travel the three miles or so to the South Bronx, uh, the income has fallen to about $30,000 a year. Uh, impoverishment is everywhere. And lifespan falls by, by, by at least 10 years, probably more. If it's in Glasgow from the west to the east of Glasgow, the lifespan changes 24 years. Uh, these are massive. To give you an idea how massive, let me, let me tell you a fact. Uh, one of the great breakthroughs in medical technology of the past uh, three decades is the development of cholesterol medicine, statins. So if you have high cholesterol now, uh, your life can be lengthened by statins. Um, if you take statins for 20 years, the, the average life gain, according to the most optimistic studies of statins, is 20 years of statin treatment on average gives you 21 extra days of life. And that's a medical breakthrough. On the D train between 85th Street in Manhattan and 135th Street in South Bronx, you lose 21 days in seven seconds of travel. So the, the proportionate impact of the circumstances of life, the complexity that Catherine's referring to, overwhelms anything we ever think about doing in medical care. And, that, and I could give you many statistics about that. Um, we shouldn't stop giving statins. And I think we should do heart transplants and liver transplants and complex 
cancer chemotherapy, but don't expect health to emerge from that. If we want well-being, uh, we have to work on causes. So that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a statement of uh, intent. Now, how are we going to work on causes? You can do it only through change. The, you've, you've got to change the way we organize our healthcare and healthcare's connection to the rest of society and the social environment that creates this, this monster in the South Bronx. Um, it, it can be done. The change is accessible. We actually know, and one of the things I've been doing this year is looking for examples of communities and areas where that kind of change occurs. And I could talk about that for more time than we have. But what, I think what I'll do is do this. Since, since we have a, a British colleague with us, I'll talk about work I do in Britain, because I work with the National Health Service all the time. And one of the things I do there is when I go there, I visit sites all over England uh, that are uh, innovating under the sponsorship of the National Health Service through a program originally called New Care Models, or the Vanguard program that you probably know well. What happened is in, in the English National Health Service, which is organized, they call them trusts. These are like, I guess here they'd be medical corporations, physician groups, or a cluster of hospitals. There are about 250 or 300 trusts that make up the English delivery system. 50 of them were picked about four years ago as Vanguard sites. And they were, they were given some permission. They were, some rules were suspended. They were given a little bit of money. And they were told, go scout. Go find a different way to do this stuff toward what we would call the triple aim in, in better care, better health, and lower cost. In England, it's the, they call it the five-year forward view. It's a sense of what could happen in the National Health Service. And it's a lot of the stuff that Catherine was referring to. Uh, the trusts come in five flavors, hospitals, physician groups, uh, accident emergency rooms, uh, uh, care homes like uh, the nursing homes for us, and one of the men mental health uh, systems. And my job is to visit them and watch innovation happen under these circumstances. And in a, now, let me tell you, the scene in the English National Health Service is not very happy right now. People are depressed. They feel beaten down. I don't want to overstate it, but it's hard be hard to overstate it. Um, there, there has been a decade or more, really since Blair, Blair's later terms, when, when the people were upset about the NHS, it's costing too much money, it's not delivering, and we're going to press it to do better. We're going to cause innovation through incentive, through uh, public shaming, through uh, external inspection. We're going to make these people do better. That's basically the theme. I'm overstating, but we can talk about that. that was been the, that's how so much of the world operates. We're going to do better by pushing harder. And the government has all sorts of levers for pushing harder. Uh, not in the vanguards. For some reason, and I don't know what the history of this is, they said, okay, we'll keep up this pressure and we're going to make people feel like they better do well or we're gonna, they're going to get hurt or if they do better, they're going to get rewarded external entrenched. But we're going to also offer some places a chance to just go find out what they can find out. And that's the brilliance there. In this very fraught environment, there have emerged now these 50 places which have been charged to innovate. Not all of them are doing great, but I visited probably 40 of them in the past three years. And there is a phenomenology that, that uh, was occurring to me as Catherine was talking, because she nailed it. W in these places, care, including community-based uh, relationships to health, are changing. And they're changing in an in a organic, from-within way that is constantly visible. When you vi <coughs> visit these places, I was just making a list as she was talking of <coughs> Some of the things you see, very importantly, the emergence of local leaders, not formally commissioned, not branded or named, not titled. This is Dr. Duncan Gooch in, Glos in, Dar in Glossop, Derbyshire. Uh, I think it was Glossop. I can't remember. No, no, in Arawash. Uh, he's a guy. He's a GP, no formal power, who under the umbrella of just what he would call little headroom, kind of a half day a week kind of thing, and encouragement and a little risk-taking has developed what I think is a revolutionary approach to integrated primary care. What, he's, what he wanted to do is build a system so that whoever you were, whenever you needed help, you could just right get in. The barriers went away completely in a, in a somewhat bureaucratic system. How he did it, we could talk about the details, but the guy is, when I said to Duncan, why are you doing this? He said, I always wanted to do this. You know, I, don't, I, I want to help, and I have ideas, and what would happen in this vanguard system is somebody asked me for my ideas. 
Um, I've seen it in, in community after community, uh, finding these people who emerge saying, now I have permission to run with it. And by the way, since they're local and they're right there, they can get their friends and their neighbors and their colleagues to come along with them. They, 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 they they're, they're part of a, of a local social system. Um, I see um, this concept of headroom, which I don't know how to map into what Catherine said, but when you're so busy doing what you're doing all the time and you have no chance to just take a breath, have a Coke, and just sit back and say, what would I like to do? And then ha why don't we get together for lunch? It changes everything. And tiny amounts, com compared to the billions of pounds that have gone into this top-down pressure, little tiny doses of permission uh, make enormous difference. Um, a permission to fail. So in the, in the top-down system, if you try, you, you, you don't leave the, you stay in the quarter, because why would you take a risk? If you take a risk, the CQC, the Inspection Commission, is going to show up and say, oh, no, you failed. You can't learn without risk. And you said it's, it changed from learning to, what was the word you said? Growing. 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 You yeah. can't grow without risk. Watch a child. And what Duncan Gooch tells you is, you know, we, it didn't work the first three times, but that was okay. I had the permission to actually try stuff. Uh, the engagement of community assets, what, what Duncan Gooch, to use him as an example, is you find your friends outside your system. The elders in that community were already organized. Now they're part of the system. They come in and they help each other in ways that wouldn't have been possible in a formally controlled system. And this finding friends has been amazing. And it, you work with abundance. I was in um, Gloucestershire uh, a few weeks ago where the National Health Service has uh, formed a partnership with a wonderful organization called Treasure Seekers that's just an emerging community effort that runs drop-in centers for extremely mentally ill people in, Glossop, in, excuse me, in Gloucester. But the, 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 the NHS system has now bonded to this community asset and identified the 700 most needy mentally Ill, people with mental illness. These are people who are in the police station five times a day, who are on the street yelling and breaking things. Who are, no, it's, they're absolutely gone. I met with a policeman, policewoman, who was in this drop-in center. They call it the cavern. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a cave, but they have a, 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 a coffee shop with a barista, and now the mentally ill people are the baristas. They're trained to do that. They, they have a, a stage where people play music. This is the health service reaching into the community to find abundance over and over again. The, one of the interesting things that emerge here um, it, that Catherine was referring to, I would take as scale. What is the size of the unit that can take action under conditions in which people find affiliation with each other, in which they love each other? I sleep well if you sleep well. How big is that? is that pot. And what I'm finding in this Vanguard work, it's, it's relatively small collectives, uh, you know, uh, not, not tiny, but, but communities that know their communities. They, they, they bond together. So I do think um, the change is possible, but I think it's not, not, with the, not with the theories we've got generally that are control-oriented, incentive-oriented theories. So I could go on. I, I, I will stop with that. But I'll say a lot of what Catherine said about viewing this through the complex systems lens to me is exactly the right way to think about it. Is that enough for now, Mark? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Don. Thank you. Yeah, let's, uh, boy, I find myself wishing this was sort of the beginning of a, a semester-long seminar uh, with the kind of learning uh, that uh, we're being invited into, the community of learning, we're, and, and let me say, and growth that we're being invited into uh, with these presentations. Um, we can do one of two things to respond or we can open up to some questions. Mm. Should we? Yeah, I think I open it up. Yeah, I'd I rather. Mean, yeah, 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 let's, let's do let's that. See questions or comments? Boy, this is rich stuff, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. um, can you let us know who you are as well yeah. and if you want to, kind of what brought you here so we know the context? Uh, well, first of all, thank you both. Um, thank you, all of you. Uh, my name is Nishina Minavine. I'm a mid-career MPA student and a fellow in minority health policy through the medical school. Um, my question for you is with this new um, generation of Congress coming in, what would be the advice you would give to the new members of Congress in moving forward uh, for greater preventive health care? Are you going to 
presume to instruct our <laughs> colonial <laughs> Congress. Far be it for me. Far be it for me. Don may have some thoughts. Yeah, I might that. parry that one across <laughs> the aisle. If that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we. I do believe this idea of cooperative intent. I, the, I, somehow this phrase, I sleep well if you sleep well, I, just, I, I actually teared up when I heard it. That's the core of it. It's solidarity. It's a sense that we have a shared intent. And you have not heard in Congress, in my view, enough declaration of, of the shared intent to make something better. Uh, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm look, listening for those voices. And, I, and I, 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 you know, in England, Europe, uh, solidarity is a word used all the time, uh, ev even on the right. Uh, you don't hear that word here, and we need to hear it. That's, that would be sort of the values level advice. Just one comment on that. Uh, you know, we've had 60 of the 90 new Congress people here. Uh, and uh, the night before last was a dinner where everybody introduced themselves. And it was really interesting. Um, first of all, the, the gender composition of that group, mm. boy, was it different. Yeah, I mean, and there were... You know, there were the moms with kids, uh, the moms with grown kids, there were uh, people without kids. But there was a gender shift that really uh, shaped a lot of the culture that you heard in that room. There were also a lot of veterans, men and women, who um, get something about service and about commitment. Uh, there was very little of what you would think of as a corporate presence. Uh, I don't know. There was a very distinct feeling. Now, the challenge, of course, is to build, to bring that, to bring that spirit <laughs> into an uh, institution that has not exactly been hospitable to that kind of spirit. But uh, we had uh, one of the two uh, first two uh, Muslim women elected to uh, Congress come to our class on public narrative yesterday, uh, Rashida Tlaib from uh, from Detroit. Boy, I mean, talk about a fresh spirit. It's it's really exciting, but you know, I think I think it's a challenge for all of us. So, not just in healthcare across the board, but it was one of the more hopeful experiences I've had recently. Did they did they articulate the, a change in, in tone or approach that they want to progress? It was, it was people starting off talking about um, how they grew up. Now, maybe I'm a sucker for that because of the story of self. <laughs> but, you know, what their parents did, uh, uh, situating themselves kind of within a moral universe. Yeah. Uh, that is very different than, you know, I'm the greatest this, 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 and now I'm going to go on and be the greatest, even more great. Uh, it was a very different character to, to those. Just listening to the introductions for an hour and a half was really uh, kind of inspiring. But let's go for more. I just say on that, one of the things that I feel very hopeful about is, so there's a paradox, I think, that in order to attain representative office, we have to, don't we, stand as me. And I have to give an account of myself as an individual. Um, and if I reflect that back on some of what we were talking about, the complexity of the challenge, it's, it's a lot that we ask of leadership. Because my, what I would ask of them is, yes, you as the individual, you have a position, you have authority, you kind of have a model of leadership to get to that place. Yet the demands of being in that place calls on you much more to convene right. conversation mm -hmm. and energy than to harness it through yourself. And that's a, that's a really big ask. But I was going to say, for our generation, my generation, if we're now getting to the point of taking public office and inspiring hope, that convening piece around energy is critical, as well as that piece around what are we here for doing, right? At a basic level, what is the purpose of why I'm in this position? Hmm. And getting better at articulating that in a way that's inclusive, kind of your story of us. That's what I would ask. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes. Thanks so much for your, your talk. So my name's Hassan Sheikh. I'm an ER doctor and addictions doctor in Canada and an MPA student here in my first year. And one of the things you talked a lot about was this kind of bottom-up uh, kind of you know, frontline experience to drive innovation. And one of the issues we have in Canada is because we're publicly funded but privately delivered, um, we have very little kind of top-down coordination and innovation kind of about referral processes and system level things. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that tension of top-down coordination and innovation versus bottom-up, and also if you have any uh, insights into the, the drawbacks and the benefits of 
innovation in the private healthcare system versus a public healthcare system? Who would like that? <laughs> Do you want to start? You start, start, start. <laughs> um, So it's, it's, I, I can't speak to the Canadian example. It's not something I have experience of. But I think in, in the NHS, the National Health Service in England, we're constantly trying to marry these two poles in the system. Um, and I think one of the frustrations with um, some people in what we're articulating here today is sort of, that's grand, but how do I make that happen, right, within the constraints of the system? Um, partly for me, that is about creating and then protecting spaces where these ideas and these sorts of conversations can flourish. So that whatever is context specific about where you are, you can develop the capacity, the networks, the ideas to take it and run with it. It's why I feel very passionately, for example, about our unit, NHS Horizons, having a protected space to sort of stray from local to national, um, to regional, to different areas of content and discipline, um, and have as our reason for existing the ability to connect ideas to networks and to equip other people to do that. So I think if we can bake into our system points at which there are people doing that role, um, it puts us in a stronger place across the whole. Agreed. Um, yeah. So in this tension you were talking about, Hassan, the, I, I, uh, I, understand, I really see it. And there's, a, there's sort of a political, uh, uh, not a politically correct, but there's a sign of, the, I'm supposed to say it, bottom up is great, and, every, and it is. You know, you need a tremendous amount of this kind of energy that, that the Duncan Gooches have out there. But I think there's a very important top-down top piece to this, and that's the difference between correct and incorrect leadership. Uh, Marshall teaches this when he teaches his model. You'll notice he puts in structure. It's one of the six elements. because. You, it's not just like everybody do your thing. You need some way to have to, to have to be to have synergies, and the synergy comes out of certain kinds of re structured relationships. So here's some top-down stuff. One is I think uh, think of the best leader you've ever known. Somebody you couldn't wait to be involved with. They probably said something like, "Let's take that hill." You know, how about it? Would you like to end the opioid epidemic? Would you like to? Make sure no one ever gets a pressure ulcer again. Would you like to make sure that uh, kids can read when they're three? You know, I think that um, that's a very important role. In England, it got, and here, it gets off track because you, you do get goals, but then they get attached to targets and incentives and payment, and you end up in the wrong loop. But that doesn't mean that the take that, how would you like to take that hill? That's the second piece of it. I think leadership through invitation. If I had one lesson from my career to the extent I've helped lead stuff, it's that. It's, it's invitation. It's going to Duncan Gooch and saying, how would you like to? And if you don't want to, that's also okay. And people are ready to sign up if you create an opportunity for that. That's top down. Mm -hmm. The other top down is a very minor point here, but it's, it sounds small, but I don't think it is, and that is honoring science. That, you know, there, there is a human enterprise of the generation of reliable knowledge. You know, the, 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 the earth is warming, and we know it now, and that's not kind of not debatable. Real, it's debatable, but it, you'd be kind of foolish to debate it given the science. We have an anti-science uh, era at the moment with the monster in the White House, and I think that the uh, it's all too easy on the progressive side also to lose science to say, well, you know, the people want to do this. You have to have the courage to say, but. But we have to we have to look at those facts. The, the nature does exist, so those are top down. I think the melding is the key. Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, out there. Okay, but somebody here, and then over here. Hi, um, my name is Shakira Bramwell. I'm a undocumented immigrant from Jamaica, um, and particularly what struck me when you said, um, Catherine, about being radical about healthcare, so you have to, in my mind, think outside the box of how you can help people at the bottom up, from the bottom up. And I think I read this book recently talking about decolonizing the black body, 
and how it compares the white body to a kind of intellectualization because it lives in a modern society, and the black body or the uncivilized body to a compared to the nature, the flora, the farmer. So they know what is around them. Maybe it's 140 species of ingredients that cures you. Um, and I think we're talking, I want to know what you guys think is the healthcare system when you say that. Is that doctors? Is that insurance companies? Is it the pharmaceuticals? And can we extend that to people who are in developing countries who are practicing herbalism? For instance, much of our, none of our uh, medicines are inorganic. People say that, but it's not. It's made from organic materials, and pe um, people that live in developing countries are aware of that. Um, I think one of the things we want to learn to do in the healthcare is to communicate to those people that, yes, this route you're using is similar to the medication in this way, and you're using that correctly. Um, so I think I... I no, I just want to, urge okay. them to give them time to respond. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go yeah. ahead and finish your thought. Um, so I just wondered, you know, how can, from a bottom-up perspective, we bring in other elements of healthcare other than the Western perspective? We have the Eastern perspective. We have the spiritual care spectrum. We can talk about voodoo doctors, obia doctors. They're all, you know, we talk about witchcraft, but it's very much herbalism. It's very much um, them taking the flora and former in their... Uh, um, environment and using that to cure themselves. Yeah. We as um, I think at we, this level, yeah. how do we communicate mm -hmm. that to them? That thank you. Who wants to? Ah, thank you for that. That's a great question. I'm not sure how equipped I am to answer it because there's a whole heap of thoughts. But if I can, I try and draw a thread back to some of what I was saying earlier. Um, when, when I do work with um, clinicians and others in the system, I was with a group of them from all over England, um, let's see, maybe three or four days ago. And we were talking about the work that they were doing around jargon, personalization, right? This question about moving from um, how do I give care for people like you to how do I care for you, right? And, and that difference being so fundamental. And... Um, the question, so we had to go at designing, what would this look like as a social movement, right? Which is one of the sort of exercises we do. And the question that came back time and time again was, what matters to you, right? And if we can hold that question in our mind, in not just the function of what we're delivering, but in the way that we approach it, the philosophy that we use for thinking about what Don talks about in terms of wellness, as well as health, then all sorts of things follow from that. Whether it's looking at a more expansive view of what medicine is, whether it's looking at what I can learn from other cultures and experiences and bring in where the system allows. Um, so I think, again, that has to be like the guiding star, the kind of the, the stretching but possible that we're aiming to as a healthcare system. You got to organize this semester course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is too much yeah. here. Great. <laughs> yeah. Really? I really wish we could talk with you longer about your question. Um, the, f first of all, um, I'll make three points. First is uh, classical medicine pretends it knows what it's doing much more than it does know what it's doing. So if you look at the fact base for, the, for a clinical encounter, a remarkable amount of what's going on, there's no, there's no research. There really isn't anything firm about it. We, we've come to believe that doing this helps, and then hopefully science unveils the, the natural truths. Uh, so you, you know, you're, you're right to be skeptical. On the other hand, I, I'd want to know from you, you know, if someone shows up and says this herb helps, to what, uh, to what interrogation should that assertion be? be subjected. Is simply the belief system enough? Do we want to just say, well, we trust everybody, and if you think it, you think it helps, it probably helps? Or do we want, is there an interrogation to be done using some lens? I think probably yes. I think the lenses we use, by the way, are disabled right now. The, the, the hegemonic evaluation community, I'd say this is in all fields, but certainly in medicine, it's very myopic. It's very narrow in the way it thinks about learning. Uh, and, but, I, but that doesn't, to me, mean 
dumb it down. And we're not talking about the loss of discipline. It's just the introduction of new disciplines. And I, the conversation I'd love to have with you over coffee, well, okay, what would you trust to be the interrogation framework for the emergent uh, knowledge of the culture, re resident knowledge? Um, the last thing, just a little fact you should know, placebo effect. Um, there's, a, there's some papers I could share with you. Google Wayne Jonas and look at his paper on, uh, on placebo effect. Placebo effect is massive. It's far larger than the effect of the, of the um, interventions. Yeah, that, yeah. So when, if you take placebo as zero, then the intervention looks good. But if you take placebo as an intervention, its effect actually is phenomenal. And the reasons are very complex. I can't, uh, Wayne Jonas has done a tremendous job thinking it through. It's about relationships. It's about um, moving from transaction to relationship. And that is healing. And um, it's really amazing to see. So anyway, those are some of the things you prompt. This, this warrants more conversation. <coughs> Loneliness increases the risk of stroke by 39%. Now you, you, you tell me, you tell me what that's about. Boy, it's like, it just feels like we just got started. Doesn't it, yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, this is phenomenal. It's like we've been invited on a journey here. We have one minute. Oh, no. Uh, Can I have a question on the other Yeah, how much? Do you want to take like a couple at once? And then, and then we can wrap up, yeah, because of um, time. So let's get a couple. Yeah, we have one back there and one here. All right, very quick. Uh, sure. Uh, this has kind of bars. been addressed in other questions, but yeah. um, I guess sure. what I'm interested in is these are great concepts. What do you propose is the best way to spread this growth or these concepts through policy, through, I mean, there's public and private sectors. Uh, every country is different. Uh, would it be through peers, uh, through okay. uh, laws, things Got like it. that? How to actually make it happen, yes. My question is about addressing can you hear me better now? Yeah. Um, my question is about addressing the social determinants of health. And by that, I don't just mean sort of the linear variables you factor into health outcomes. I mean the broader opportunity structures outside of just the preconditions to health. And part of the serious shortcoming of health system, I'll make it really short, yeah. I promise, is that we don't teach our students to think about health systems as a social institution. And that narrows our thinking about what we, as leaders in health systems, can yeah. do to address yeah. some of those opportunity yeah. structure problems. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. great. There was one over here, yeah. and um, then over there. So I, I wanted to address something that you had said both about the, the structures that are necessary to create the headspace, as you put it, Dr. Berwick, for allowing this bottom-up innovation, particularly within primary care. Um, I'd worked on an initiative that dealt with the patient-centered medical home concept and specifically where within, not to talk about payment so much, but uh, untying people from the hamster wheel of fee-for-service, giving people a little bit of a fee per head that might be able to create some of that headspace that's needed to bring primary care back to what it was always <coughs> meant to be and wondering some, some of your thoughts that you might have about that model specifically. Thank you. And last one. Hear me? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Hassan, I'm a master's student in healthcare quality and safety program in Harvard Med School. Just in continuation of the question from my fellows, I have one more uh, question to it. That's that about adding the system science and quality science within the current curriculums that we have in med schools okay. and healthcare training programs. And then building up the whole system from there would be a very good yeah. or maybe an effective intervention at that aspect of creating tomorrow's generation that's going to be really efficient in terms of looking into team-based learning and reducing the social disparities in the healthcare, looking for the delivery of the cost and how the systems interact with each other and in uh, with Got different it. sectors. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to have really to wrap up here. Uh, so I guess a couple of minutes to solve all. <laughs> Good luck. Talk about complexity. <laughs> yeah, you, right. Yeah, this is a great growth opportunity. That's how we have to think about it. Don, you want to go first? And sure. Catherine, you want to? Yeah. Uh, so how to spread um, the concepts we're talking about? I, I'm not, I don't. What, you, I didn't hear your name, but. Uh, Corey. Corey. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know. I, my my view is uh, forums. That, that this is about conversation. 
and I don't think I think I can't think of a control system that would allow this to spread. It's this. It's the conversation. I think government can play a role in that kind of convening. When I ran CMS, put a lot of energy into the way into places to talk, and I, I know this is such a such a limp answer, but you, you got to talk about this stuff. There's no there's no control system. I know. Um, with respect to social determinants of health. Uh, uh, everyone should just buy right now, like get on your outside on your phone and buy it, uh, or better go to your local bookstore. Uh, Michael, <laughs> Michael Marmot's book called uh, The Health Gap, it's phenomenal. Marmot says, he takes social determinants to six categories. The experiences of children, especially in early childhood, the education system, especially for women and girls, uh, the workplace with a whole bunch of dimensions of, of, of work, the way society deals with aging, uh, the resilience of communities, which is this thing I described about communities able to take local action. And then finally, a category called fairness, which is really the solidarity uh, ethics piece. But, but, but he offers a really great summary of what social determinants mean empirically. The headroom uh, piece, uh, your question, I'm sorry, your first name? Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan and Micah and, and Sanjay and I have been working on, on single-payer health care. Obviously, the, my view is if you consolidate budgets, so that instead of paying for gerbil cage activity, you have a single budget for populations like they do in Gloucester. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get to move the money around and say, hey, we'll buy a day for you to do some headroom. I don't think that's a fall in your sword issue right now, but I think we're, we're, it's very stupid the way we fund healthcare in the U.S. because we don't have, we, you know, you get paid for doing, not for communicating or thinking together. And finally, system science. I mean, Hassan, what can I say? Yes. I mean, I, I spent hours <laughs> learning organic chemistry that I have, I didn't use in, uh, for a second after the final exam in medical school. And no one ever taught me about systems and proper interpretation of variation and the psychology of groups and things that I would, I would just, I would really do a different curriculum. Right now, the good-hearted people who, run, who, who teach and run in our medical schools, they're fully invested in the curriculums. There is no headroom. There's no way to say, hey, by the way, could we teach how to, a better way to interact? And they say there's no room. So we need some invention. There's some really great medical schools in the country now, in, in a, a Northwell in um, Long Island, uh, Austin, Texas, the Dell Medical School, the new medical school that Kaiser Permanente is just starting. And the new ones are really kind of going to back to square one. And that would be great to study what they're doing. Catherine. Um, I see such synergies between your questions, she says elegantly, that I'm just going to take them as a lot. <laughs> That's all right. Um, rather than separate it out. But I think this idea of how we grow these ideas is, is really critical. Um, I am a lawyer, so you might expect me to say it's legislative, but I'm also a recovering lawyer, so I kind of look at it as much beyond that. Um, you can't legislate for consciousness. You can't legislate for culture, although there is an interplay between culture and legislation. Um, I think some of this has to do with uh, language. It's the reason why, speaking entirely personally, I'm increasingly uncomfortable with language about scale and much more attracted to language about growth. Growth being based on taking ideas and approaches which can then be applied context specifically. And, and that's very different from one way of looking at language around scale, which is the kind of industrialized model of thinking with certainty about linear processes. And maybe that's a conversation we can have at some point. Yes. There's another one. We'll add it to the list. Um, you asked about the exposure to these ideas. I absolutely think that's key. I've run an experiment in the last year. I've been working with a group of mental health social workers at the start of their career. And I was given a, a lot of leeway. So we've been looking at adult development and systems thinking and ideas that initially there's resistance to because they feel it's so far over the, their heads in a literal sense. It's not something they have the capacity. It's not been developed in them to understand. But I think exposure at a really early stage is key. Because even if we can't quite make sense of ideas at a point in time, knowing that they're there and that we need to have them in our purview is critical. So I'll end just with one other book recommendation. Jennifer Garvey Berger's wonderful book, Changing on the Job. And this is key. It's not about taking us out of our day jobs in order to make the change. It's what can I do differently now that develops my capacity to do this while I'm doing the doing, but developing as I go. Well, it, you know, <clears throat> as I'm sitting here reflecting, and it's not because to the guy with the hammer everything looks like a nail, mm. 
this feels like uh, the, the birthing or the emergence of a movement. It really does because of the, the, the inclusiveness, the depth, the moral dimension. What we're hearing about is a really fresh way of, of engaging with these kinds of challenges. So I just want to thank uh, Catherine and Don so much for uh, this presentation. Uh, we really should have a class <laughs> to build out of this. You have book recommendations. We have a syllabus to start with. Uh, so let's give them let's a, a big round of applause. For such a great You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.